Section 30 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 30 chapter forty two part five these considerations joined to the peaceable unambitious temper of the young prince prevailed over his resentment and he fell gradually into a good correspondence with the court of england it is probable that the queen's chief object in her dissimulation with regard to the execution of mary was that she might thereby afford james a decent pretence for renewing his amity with her on which their mutual interests so much depended while elizabeth ensured tranquillity from the attempts of her nearest neighbour she was not negligent of more distant dangers hearing that philip though he seemed to dissemble the daily insults and injuries which he received from the english was secretly preparing a great navy to attack her he sent sir francis drake with a fleet to intercept his supplies to pillage his coast and to destroy his shipping drake carried out four capital ships of the queen's and twenty-six great and small with which the london merchants in hope of sharing in the plunder had supplied him having learned from two dutch ships which he met with in his passage that a spanish fleet richly laden was lying at cadiz ready to sail for lisbon the rendezvous of the intended armada he bent his course to the former harbour and boldly as well as fortunately made an attack on the enemy he obliged six galleys which made head against him to take shelter under the forts he burned about a hundred vessels laden with ammunition and naval stores and he destroyed a great ship of the marquis of santa croce thence he set sail for cape st vincent and took by assault the castle situated on that promontory with three other fortresses he next insulted lisbon and finding that the merchants who had engaged entirely in expectation of profit were discontented at these military enterprises he set sail for the terceras with an intention of lying in wait for a rich carrack which was expected in those parts he was so fortunate as to meet with his prize and by this short expedition in which the public bore so small a share the adventurers were encouraged to attempt further enterprises the english seamen learned to despise the great unwieldy ships of the enemy the naval preparations of spain were destroyed the intended expedition against england was retarded a twelvemonth and the queen thereby had leisure to take more secure measures against that formidable invasion this year thomas cavendish a gentleman of devonshire who had dissipated a good estate by living at court being resolved to repair his fortune at the expense of the spaniards 
fitted out three ships at Plymouth, one of a hundred and twenty tons, another of sixty, and a third of forty, and with these small vessels he ventured into the South Sea, and committed great depredations on the Spaniards. He took nineteen vessels, some of which were richly laden, and returning by the Cape of Good Hope, he came to London, and entered the river in a kind of triumph. His mariners and soldiers were clothed in silk, his sails were of damask, his topsail cloth of gold, and his prizes were esteemed the richest that had ever been brought into England. The land enterprises of the English were not, during this campaign, so advantageous or honourable to the nation. The important place of Deventer was entrusted by Leicester to William Stanley, with a garrison of twelve hundred English, and this gentleman, being a Catholic, was alarmed at the discovery of Babington's conspiracy, and became apprehensive lest every one of his religion should thenceforth be treated with distrust in England. He entered into a correspondence with the Spaniards, betrayed the city to them for a sum of money, and engaged the whole garrison to desert with him to the Spanish service. Roland York, who commanded a fort near Zutphen, imitated his example, and the Hollanders, formerly disgusted with Leicester and suspicious of the English, broke out into loud complaints against the improvidence, if not the treachery, of his administration. Soon after, he himself arrived in the Low Countries, but his conduct was nowise calculated to give them satisfaction or to remove the suspicions which they had entertained against him. The Prince of Parma having besieged Sloys, Leicester attempted to relieve the place, first by sea, then by land, but failed in both enterprises, and as he had ascribed his bad success to the ill behaviour of the Hollanders, they were equally free in reflections upon his conduct. The breach between them became wider every day. They slighted his authority, opposed his measures, and neglected his counsels, while he endeavoured by an imperious behaviour and by violence to recover that influence which he had lost by his imprudent and ill-concerted measures. He was even suspected by the Dutch of a design to usurp upon their liberties, and the jealousy entertained against him began to extend towards the queen herself. That princess had made some advances towards a peace with Spain. A congress had been opened at Bourbourg, a village near Graveline, and though the two courts, especially that of Spain, had no other intention than to amuse each of them its enemy by negotiation, and mutually relax the preparations for defence or attack, the Dutch, who were determined on no terms to return under the Spanish yoke, became apprehensive lest their liberty should be sacrificed to the political interests of England. But the Queen, who knew the importance of her alliance with the States during the present conjuncture, was resolved to give them entire satisfaction by recalling Leicester, and commanding him to resign his government. Morris, 
son of the late prince of orange a youth of twenty years of age was elected by the state's governor in his place and peregrine lord willoughby was appointed by the queen commander of the english forces the measures of these two generals were much embarrassed by the malignity of leicester who had left a faction behind him and who still attempted by means of his emissaries to disturb all the operations of the states as soon as elizabeth received intelligence of these disorders she took care to redress them and she obliged all the partisans of england to fall into unanimity with prince maurice but though her good sense so far prevailed over her partiality to leicester she never could be made fully sensible of his vices and incapacity the submissions which he made her restored him to her wonted favour and lord buckhurst who had accused him of misconduct in holland lost her confidence for some time and was even committed to custody sir christopher hatton was another favourite who at this time received some marks of her partiality though he had never followed the profession of the law he was made chancellor in the place of bromley deceased but notwithstanding all the expectations and perhaps wishes of the lawyers he behaved in a manner not unworthy of that high station his good natural capacity supplied the place of experience and study and his decisions were not found deficient either in point of equity or judgment his enemies had contributed to this promotion in hopes that his absence from court while he attended the business of chancery would gradually estrange the queen from him and give them an opportunity of undermining him in her favour these little intrigues and cabals of the court were silenced by the account which came from all quarters of the vast preparations made by the spaniards for the invasion of england and for the entire conquest of that kingdom philip though he had not yet declared war on account of the hostilities which elizabeth everywhere committed upon him had long harboured a secret and violent desire of revenge against her his ambition also and the hopes of extending his empire were much encouraged by the present prosperous state of his affairs by the conquest of portugal the acquisition of the east indian commerce and settlements and the yearly importation of vast treasures from america the point on which he rested his highest glory the perpetual object of his policy was to support orthodoxy and exterminate heresy and as the power and credit of elizabeth were the chief bulwark of the protestants he hoped if he could subdue that princess to acquire the eternal renown of reuniting the whole christian world in the catholic communion above all his indignation against his revolted subjects in the netherlands instigated him to attack the english who had encouraged that insurrection and who by their vicinity were so well enabled to support the hollanders that he could never hope to reduce these rebels while the power of that kingdom remained entire and unbroken 
to subdue england seemed a necessary preparative to the re-establishment of his authority in the netherlands and notwithstanding appearances the former was itself as a more important so a more easy undertaking than the latter the kingdom lay nearer spain than the low countries and was more exposed to invasions from that quarter after an enemy had once obtained entrance the difficulty seemed to be over as it was neither fortified by land or nature a long peace had deprived it of all military discipline and experience and the catholics in which it still abounded would be ready it was hoped to join any invader who should free them from those persecutions under which they laboured and should revenge the death of the queen of scots on whom they had fixed all their attention the fate of england must be decided in one battle at sea and another at land and what comparison between the english and spaniards either in point of naval force or in the numbers reputation and veteran bravery of their armies besides the acquisition of so great a kingdom success against england ensured the immediate subjection of the hollanders who attacked on every hand and deprived of all support must yield their stubborn necks to that yoke which they had so long resisted happily this conquest as it was of the utmost importance to the grandeur of spain would not at present be opposed by the jealousy of other powers naturally so much interested to prevent the success of the enterprise a truce was lately concluded with the turks the empire was in the hands of a friend and near ally and france the perpetual rival of spain was so torn with intestine commotions that she had no leisure to pay attention to her foreign interests this favourable opportunity therefore which might never again present itself must be seized and one bold effort made for acquiring that ascendant in europe to which the present greatness and prosperity of the spaniards seemed so fully to entitle them these hopes and motives engaged philip notwithstanding his cautious temper to undertake this hazardous enterprise and though the prince now created by the pope duke of parma when consulted opposed the attempt at least represented the necessity of previously getting possession of some seaport town in the netherlands which might afford a retreat to the spanish navy it was determined by the catholic monarch to proceed immediately to the execution of his ambitious project during some time he had been secretly making preparations out as soon as the resolution was fully taken every part of his vast empire resounded with the noise of armaments and all his ministers generals and admirals were employed in forwarding the design the marquis of santa croce a sea officer of great reputation and experience was destined to command the fleet and by his counsels were the naval equipments conducted in all the ports of sicily naples spain and portugal artisans were employed in building vessels of uncommon size and force naval stores were bought at a great expense 
provisions amassed armies levied and quartered in the maritime towns of spain and plans laid for fitting out such a fleet and embarkation as had never before had its equal in europe the military preparations in flanders were no less formidable troops from all quarters were every moment assembling to reinforce the duke of parma capizucci and spinelli conducted forces from italy the marquis of borgaut a prince of the house of austria levied troops in germany the walloon and burgundian regiments were completed or augmented the spanish infantry was supplied with recruits and an army of thirty-four thousand men was assembled in the netherlands and kept in readiness to be transported into england the duke of parma employed all the carpenters whom he could procure either in flanders or in lower germany and the coasts of the baltic and he built at dunkirk and newport but especially at antwerp a great number of boats and flat-bottomed vessels for the transporting of his infantry and cavalry the most renowned nobility and princes of italy and spain were ambitious of sharing in the honour of this great enterprise don amadeus of savoy don john of medicis vespasian gonzaga duke of sabionetta and the duke of pastrana hastened to join the army under the duke of parma about two thousand volunteers in spain many of them men of family had enlisted in the service no doubts were entertained but such vast preparations conducted by officers of such consummate skill must finally be successful and the spaniards ostentatious of their power and elated with vain hopes had already denominated their navy the invincible armada news of these extraordinary preparations soon reached the court of london and notwithstanding the secrecy of the spanish council and their pretending to employ this force in the indies it was easily concluded that they meant to make some effort against england the queen had foreseen the invasion and finding that she must now contend for her crown with the whole force of spain she made preparations for resistance nor was she dismayed with that power by which all europe apprehended she must of necessity be overwhelmed her force indeed seemed very unequal to resist so potent an enemy all the sailors in england amounted at that time to about fourteen thousand men the size of the english shipping was in general so small that except a few of the queen's ships of war there were not four vessels belonging to the merchants which exceeded four hundred tons the royal navy consisted of only twenty-eight sail many of which were of small size none of them exceeded the bulk of our largest frigates and most of them deserved rather the name of pinnaces than of ships the only advantage of the english fleet consisted in the dexterity and courage of the seamen who being accustomed to sail in tempestuous seas and expose themselves to all dangers as much exceeded in this particular the spanish mariners as their vessels were inferior in size and force to those of that nation all the commercial towns of england were required to furnish ships for reinforcing this small navy 
and they discovered on the present occasion great alacrity in defending their liberty and religion against those imminent perils with which they were menaced the citizens of london in order to show their zeal in the common cause instead of fifteen vessels which they were commanded to equip voluntarily fitted out double the number the gentry and nobility hired and armed and manned forty-three ships at their own charge and all the loans of money which the queen demanded were frankly granted by the persons applied to lord howard of effingham a man of courage and capacity was admiral and took on him the command of the navy drake hawkins and frobisher the most renowned seamen in europe served under him the principal fleet was stationed at plymouth the smaller squadron consisting of forty vessels english and flemish was commanded by lord seymour second son of protector somerset and lay off dunkirk in order to intercept the duke of parma the land forces of england compared to those of spain possessed contrary qualities to its naval power they were more numerous than the enemy but much inferior in discipline reputation and experience an army of twenty thousand men was disposed in different bodies along the south coast and orders were given them if they could not prevent the landing of the spaniards to retire backwards to waste the country around and wait for reinforcement from the neighbouring counties before they approached the enemy a body of twenty-two thousand foot and a thousand horse under the command of the earl of leicester was stationed at tilbury in order to defend the capital the principal army consisted of thirty-four thousand foot and two thousand horse and was commanded by lord hunsdon these forces were reserved for guarding the queen's person and were appointed to march whithersoever the enemy should appear the fate of england if all the spanish armies should be able to land seemed to depend on the issue of a single battle and men of reflection entertained the most dismal apprehensions when they considered the force of fifty thousand veteran spaniards commanded by experienced officers under the duke of parma the most consummate general of the age and compared this formidable armament with the military power which england not enervated by peace but long disused to war could muster up against it the chief support of the kingdom seemed to consist in the vigour and prudence of the queen's conduct who undismayed by the present dangers issued all her orders with tranquillity animated her people to a steady resistance and employed every resource which either her domestic situation or her foreign alliances could afford her she sent sir robert sidney into scotland and exhorted the king to remain attached to her and to consider the danger at which present menaced his sovereignty no less than her own from the ambition of the spanish tyrant the ambassador found james well disposed to cultivate a union with england and that prince even kept himself prepared to march with the force of his whole kingdom to the assistance of elizabeth her authority with the king of denmark and the tie of their common religion 
engaged this monarch upon her application to seize a squadron of ships which philip had bought or hired in the danish harbours Mahan's towns though not at that time on good terms with elizabeth were induced by the same motives to retard so long the equipment of some vessels in their ports that they became useless to the purpose of invading england all the protestants throughout europe regarded this enterprise as the critical event which was to decide forever the fate of their religion and though unable by reason of their distance to join their force to that of elizabeth they kept their eyes fixed on her conduct and fortune and beheld with anxiety mixed with admiration the intrepid countenance with which she encountered that dreadful tempest which was every moment advancing towards her the queen was also sensible that next to the general popularity which she enjoyed and the confidence which her subjects reposed in her prudent government the firmest support of her throne consisted in the general zeal of the people for the protestant religion and the strong prejudices which they had imbibed against popery she took care on the present occasion to revive in the nation this attachment to their own sect and this abhorrence of the opposite the English were reminded of their former danger from the tyranny of Spain, all the barbarities exercised by Mary against the Protestants were ascribed to the counsels of that bigoted and imperious nation, the bloody massacres in the Indies, the unrelenting executions in the Low Countries, the horrid cruelties and iniquities of the Inquisition, were set before men's eyes a list and description was published and pictures dispersed of the several instruments of torture with which it was pretended the spanish armada was loaded and every artifice as well as reason was employed to animate the people to a vigorous defence of their religion their laws and their liberties End of section thirty chapter forty two part five